welcome to our last Tuesday of the month book discussion. Just a couple of librarians talking about books we think others might enjoy. August's read is Lost Children Archive by Valeria Luiselli. Spoiler alert, we usually end up discussing endings and key plot points. I'm Amy, and joining me today is Mike, Adult Services Librarian at Corville Public Library. Welcome! Oh, thank you, Amy. It's hard to believe it, but I have been at the Corville Library for over 20 years. By far the longest job I've ever had, but it's fun. I love working at the library. Yeah, that totally beats my three years here at North Liberty, and it is other than like babysitter when I was younger is definitely by far the longest job I've had at three years. Well, well, I do believe I have a few years on you. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of us joining in the conversation here, if you haven't read Lost Children Archive yet, or just to give us an overview, if you did read it a while ago, the book follows a blended family as they attempt to stay together on a road trip from New York to Arizona. However, as readers may glean from the title, This is the story of the lost. The author beautifully weaves other grander losses into this story, the echoes and sounds that the family is chasing in their adventure across the states. Jumping off then, did you have strong feelings about how the author's narrative and chosen voice affected your reading experience? Yes and no. At first, I found the storytelling you know, it seemed like a kind of a domestic story. And honestly, I found it a little bit hard to get into, but I think it really set the groundwork for what came later. They're on the road already, but we find out about their lives in New York City and their work they're doing, the recording and everything. But I think that really sets up what happens later. You know, it's, it's very domestic, but then there's definitely a switch. There's several narrative shifts throughout. I agree with you that it started off very domestic. And I did also have little hesitation when I was getting into it, where I was like, okay, is this going to be the entire book? Is there going to be some depth added to it? Mm -hmm. And it did. I think by the end, it felt very full. Yes. It grew into something completely different than what you start with and then what the story starts as. The thing I did enjoy at the beginning was this little domestic moment of the children falling asleep while the adults were talking. And it's really silly. And, you know, the children just start farting in their sleep or one of them does and the other starts reacting. And it was really funny, but very domestic, too, you know, and it was like, well, that's kind of sweet. But it does take a number of turns. But I guess that makes sense since in some ways it really is kind of a road trip book, although you know, it harkens to On the Road a little bit by Jack Kerouac, but only in the most general kind of ways, I think. They made that reference and I immediately had to go and like listen to or read some snippets because I had never really read a whole lot of Jack Kerouac or even maybe anything. Yeah, I used to read On the Road every few years in the spring when after a long winter, you know, it kind of gives you the yearning to get up and just go, you know, go, 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 man. But I think there's another little parallel uh, toward the end of the book. There's a 20 page or so long single sentence. And so it's almost like the stream of consciousness kind of writing that the beatniks were known for, especially Jack Kerouac. But I don't think he even ever did that. That just reminded me of when he has that long stream of consciousness. For some reason, and maybe it's because I also listened to it. That was an experience in and of itself. I think it reminded me very much of 
and I'm going to blank on the author's name. So if you know it, rescue me, please. But the Howell. Yeah, Ginsburg. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it reminded mm-hmm. me very much yeah. of that. Too. <laughs> very good point. There are some parallels you could definitely yeah. see. So getting into like point of view, because we did talk about how it takes some shifts and there are shifts in parts two and three, I believe, where we switch entirely point of views from the mother. We may even get one brief chapter from the father at some point. I think there's a small section. Yeah. But two and three, I think, is mostly dominated by the boy as Mm. we kind of hear him referred to throughout most of the book. I really enjoyed the shift to his perspective more so than I enjoyed the mom's perspective for most of it. I did too. Partly it was because, you know, her perspective is as an adult and, you know, you've got all the responsibilities and his is his younger perspective. Also, I think one of the things too is thinking about narrative in this and thinking about told stories, you know, and how his perspective is really filled by stories that are told and the stories that he knows kind of adds a little sense of adventure almost. You could say the same is true for the mother, but there's more of a sense of adventure with him. I did enjoy those parts more. And that's when it really took off for me was going into the second part of the book. Yes, definitely. His voice is just so different from hers. And he, like you said, just kind of can approach the world with a sense of wonder that adults can't. And you can see that in his voice. And Louis Selly, the author, did such a fantastic job. I think it's so hard to write from the perspective of a child, especially for adults. And like, Mm -hmm. it's just amazing. I think it's hard for any author, you know, a lot of male authors are often criticized for trying to write in a female perspective, but rightly so, you know, but it's the same thing, you know, we've all been kids, but years and experience add on and you don't remember all the things exactly what it was like to be a kid. Mm-hmm. So I think she does a really fine job and really is able to conjure that. And it seems very distinct from the voice of the mother and very youthful. That just, you know, made me go off on a thought tangent about children, not necessarily always having the voice to tell their own stories. And this book mm-hmm. addresses all of that as well um, yes. on multiple levels. And I think this may be, even is trying to show support for them giving their own story, even if it's an author who's an adult giving that child a voice. I'm very Mm -hmm. interested now to see if she had some kids help her with this. I'd be curious too. I mean, isn't some of the work that she did in writing, you know, was with migrant children and, you know, so I think she maybe wasn't immersed in that, but had a lot of experience at least mm-hmm. with them. And so maybe that made it a little bit easier too, just to kind of, to really see their perspectives. Yeah. And make it seem more real when she wrote. Yeah, definitely. Maybe there were interactions that she drew from and specific, even maybe phrases or things that she could pull from with her experience. For those of our audience who may not know, she did work directly with migrant children and the mother in this story. A lot of her experiences are reflected by the author's own lived experiences, working with folks through the court process and whatnot. So this book obviously tackles some recently current events about the immigration crisis in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it also brings in stories of not Folks who have, in our history as a country, been uprooted 
what was your take on the representation of that? It was really neat to have some of that larger context in reading about the details of the experience of the main characters. You know, like the father was studying history of the Apache and the lands specifically where Geronimo and where the Apache finally surrendered in that area. And, you know, so there's that history of the Native Americans there, but then also it's closer to the border of Mexico and it's actually in the land that once was part of Mexico. So there's also the Native Mexican influence as well as Spanish influence. I mean, there are all these different cultural influences that people from one place coming to another and all kind of in this area, kind of this little hodgepodge of culture. And really thought that was fascinating. And that really drew me in quite a bit. And again, it was nice having that big picture when there was this other story going on in the middle of all of that. It was just woven beautifully. And the way that it was done, particularly in part two, because that's where we see a lot of that, because we have the boy, and I guess the girl as well, spoiler alert, specifically for this section, (laughs) the boy and girl end up going off together in the woods and essentially almost running away from their parents. And then there are passages that are read throughout this that come from another book, which I should have looked up before we had this, but also called Lost Children Archive. No, it was Elegies for Lost Elegies Children, for right? Lost children. Or, or of Lost Children. I think it wasn't a real book, but it draws from real books. But the book itself, I think, was her creation. That's how I understood it, but I could be wrong, too. That's what I was wondering. I was also wondering if there was a part of their story that was actually incorporated in it. So there was like some time jumping there and melding of time. And I wondered if that was a purposeful thing or if that was just me interpreting it that way where this book is a continuing collection of all these stories and it kind of is like a fantastical thing where it gets like pulled in that might be too much fantasy for this yeah almost like a little bit of magical realism or something you know because I kind of felt that too it was like wait a second where are we now and so it was like time was just kind of bending a little bit in there I wonder if it was intentional and saying that we're in the past now and the struggle is the same. That could be an oversimplification, but maybe something like that. That's the gist of what I was thinking as well. So I'm (laughs) glad I wasn't alone in that. And I think that with the author's personal experience definitely bleeds through and it definitely feels like a real representation, specifically when she's talking about the more current border crisis in the United States. It definitely feels very real. I'm sorry, wasn't it written in 2019? So mm-hmm. we were struggling with these. I mean, we've been for a long time, but some of the more current problems that we've been having were then happening mm-hmm. and, you know, are still happening now. Yes. Know. And now I guess the struggle is that, you know, there are so many other things that the world is focusing on. Reading this now may even seem more poignant than it would have two years ago, because we know that these things are still happening. And yet the stories aren't in front of our faces right now. And just that whole idea of lost stories becomes more poignant even now, I think. Yeah, which kind of makes me think of one thing that I thought about a lot is the whole documentation aspect, which is throughout the book. I mean, it's in the title archive, 
the parents are documenting that's kind of what they do the sounds of different places and things and so much of the book itself is there are maps and images and even at the end polaroid pictures that the son took you know which I almost didn't get that because I listened to the audio too, but I checked out the book just so I could see some of those things. And it's really fascinating. And it made me start thinking about the stories and documenting stories and however you document them visually or written word or in some record of a child that's crossed the border or, you know, whatever kind of document, a legal document or whatever, it's not documented. It's almost like it doesn't happen. If a child isn't documented coming over, then they are lost. That's kind of what happened to, spoiler, two children that the mother was trying to help find. They were in a detention center. They kind of got documented there, but then the mom lost track. And so they end up being found dead, you know, which happens to a lot of people crossing the border. So anyway, the whole documentation thing was just fascinating to me because it's all on so many different levels in both how she's told the story because it makes me think it's like the tree that falls in the woods. If, how do you know? Did it make a sound? That's getting a little off track, I guess. But <laughs> I found that aspect really intriguing. Again, I listened to the audio version mm-hmm. and it definitely felt like in some ways it was kind of a cacophony. I guess some might see it as overwhelming. I did not. I think it was very well weaved in together there were definitely sections where you would see the like you said documentation of with the discovery of a person's body who had passed like there were notes from like the coroner and reports filed by law enforcement or other officials and that sometimes made me have to take a breath because it was in those instances it felt overwhelming for me because I made an assumption that those were probably all if not a hundred percent factual from real documentation that it was based on things that had been real documentation, even if the names weren't accurate, Mm. maybe they were. So, which would even ring truer and be a little more Mm gut-wrenching. Not the lightest book, but definitely well worth it for sure. Yes. Maybe we'll move into a little lighter question here. (laughs) So I really found it a really nice moment when the family are giving different new names to each other, kind of like the importance that they put on that. And those are the only names I think that you ever hear. No, there are no names. What's the mother and the father and the son and the daughter Mm -hmm. for a long time. And that's it. Those are the characters. And yeah, they don't have names. It's like they take it upon themselves and we find out their new names as they're coming up with them, even though there are other names we know they must have, right? It's very sweet, and they all seem to like their new names. I think the girl had to kind of like grow into hers. There was a mm-hmm. point where I think she <laughs> wanted to be called. She ends up with the name Memphis, but it was like two-part name. I'm having trouble remembering it all, but I love Memphis, and I think she really does kind of grow into that a little bit, and she starts to like it more. Yes, and there's Little Feather, which is the boy, I think. Or Swift Feather. Swift, Swift, Swift Feather. Feather, yeah. And then... Cochise, um, Papa yeah. Cochise. And Lucky Arrow. And it just seemed like a very come-together moment in a time where, especially from the mom's point of view, there seemed to be some tension. And it mm-hmm. appears that at least the boy picks up on that tension. And there are a lot mm-hmm. of times where that tension is definitely felt by the children when the adults don't think that it is. Mm-hmm. Children are a lot more observant than 
parents often give them credit for it. If they don't know exactly what's going on, they know something's going on. It was just interesting to see what they did and didn't pick up on or what they interpreted as important in those relationships. Because especially I think it was probably really the big catalyst to the boy deciding, because it's the boy who makes the decision for him and the girl to essentially go off together, run away, is that he is sensing this tension between his parents and he somehow thinks that them finding them and going out and finding these lost children will somehow help make this Mm. better yeah which is really sweet you know and it is very from a youth perspective you know an adult would be like well that's not gonna save anything that's not a means to this other end but you can see how a kid would be like you know, you just get this idea and then you go. Yes, that spontaneity <laughs> oh, yeah. that we sometimes yeah. lack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the word. <laughs> there may be lack of foresight. That's right up there, I suppose, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes foresight is too much. Sometimes we rely too much on the what ifs, right? Well, it's easy to get stuck in the what ifs sometimes. So yes. sometimes you just gotta make a move. Exactly. So another scene that really stuck with me was the scene in the restaurant with the family and there was a woman feeding her baby ketchup and fries, I think. I guess that for you was like the farting one for me at the beginning of the story. Sorry. (laughs) That was just... I loved that farting one though. Yeah, I remember that image too. It stuck with me like, really? Very American maybe thing to do. Mm -hmm. But that scene also just got me thinking about the family is very conscious of their identity in this public space. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of places that that happens in the book. Because we know the mom is a native Spanish speaker. We know that that is part of her identity. I'm not sure that we learned much about the father's identity, but it all seems very flexible. Like at one point they say that they moved from France or maybe the boy Mm -hmm. said that at one point (laughs) to one of the adults he runs into, or like they were filmmakers of like a very specific genre of Western spaghetti Western. I've never heard of a spaghetti Western. Oh yeah. It's popular. It's mostly a few decades ago, I think in Italy, mostly, but in Europe, Honestly, I don't know exactly what they are, but they were a big thing for a good decade, I think, at least. So they're like very fluid in how they present themselves. Do you think that has any suggestion on American society and culture today? I think a lot of people feel like they have to do that to present a good whatever, what the acceptable presentation is by the majority you know a lot of people call it like code switching so like when you're comfortable and you feel at home you act one way and then to fit in better you maybe act a different way or slightly different way so you're not perceived as different and i think a lot of people who aren't of the majority probably feel a need to do that so that's what it says to me and that this family's just gets a little more creative with it. I mean, kind of, you know, they don't want to cause any ripples and they don't want to make any waves. This is a story this time and it's different the next time. It's a little different, you know, they're traveling. So they're not among the same people. So they can kind of do that. But I think there are some relations there. I mean, it relates to code switching. It's not exactly the same thing, I don't think. Yeah, and part of it definitely has to do with their safety and you can tell that. And I think there's even a piece where it's pretty obvious that the kids get that too. When you said that kind of blending in with the majority or not wanting to make waves, 
I think that there's a lot of discussion around how we as a society interact with people who have different viewpoints or beliefs and how we have those conversations in a way that isn't aggressive, I guess is the way I want to say it. So that was something I was thinking on as I Mm -hmm. was reading through these sections was part of it is a reality of being obviously not of the majority or not of a identity that grants you immediate power Mm -hmm. or privilege in a society. It made me think about these conversations that we have with folks who have different viewpoints and how we do that poorly these days for the most part. There are definitely avenues and venues and things that um, allow for good, open, honest communication between folks who don't have the same viewpoints. It was just so full of lots of different ideas, but at the same time, it felt like it had a very thorough line and Mm -hmm. point to the message. So Mm -hmm. I really appreciated that about this book. One of the lines that I really liked from the mother early on in the book, I don't even remember exactly where it was in the narrative, but some of the writing was just downright wonderful. And the line I keep thinking about is, I don't keep a journal. My journals are the things I underline in books. So she was talking about how she doesn't loan out books because then people will be basically reading her journals. So she doesn't write down by itself, but it's in reaction to what somebody else has written. I really liked that. But there are lots of moments like that where the writing was just really beautiful. I 100% can feel that because our reactions to books, a lot of times we don't talk about every book we read unless you've got Mm -hmm. a really good friend or partner or somebody who will do that with you. But we don't get to talk about books all the time. And so I can see where reactions to those can be very deep and often is very personal. And those inner thoughts are precious obviously (laughs) yeah i'm also going through if folks read the physical copy there are polaroids throughout which i thought was delightful yeah it's too bad that it's a podcast so you can't really see them but that's just means you need to go pick up the book and even if you listen to it you should pick up a copy of the, the book in print so you can see some of the illustrations and some of the documents and things that are scattered throughout it really fills it out in a really neat way and you can pick up copies at your local libraries folks that's right (laughs) i know the coralville has it and i'm pretty sure that north liberty does too and if your library doesn't have it i'm sure they can get it for you so 100 percent. so yeah thanks for joining us everybody if you enjoyed lost children archive and are looking for more books to add to your reading list I have a couple suggestions, and Mike also may have some for I, you. I have a couple. They're nonfiction. They're, you know, they're not stories, but it's about kind of this area, if you want to dig deeper in a couple of ways. So the first one is called On the Plane of Snakes, and it's copyright 2009 by Paul Thoreau. He does a lot of travel writing, and it's about his travels in Chiapas and Oaxaca in Mexico, and there are lots of illustrations. And it's really just kind of his travels in Mexico. So it's not directly related to this, but the illustrations and writing kind of just give you a flavor of South of the Southwest, what life is like. And the other book is by Louis Alberto Uria, The Devil's Highway. I don't remember what year it was written, but it's based on a true story about 26 migrants that cross the border and they go to an area that's not traveled a lot and it's awful and only 12 or 13 survive the trip. And so it's Urea's account of what these migrants that survived 
tell him, you know, it's their account of that. But he also interviews the smugglers that brought them over and the border patrol agents that found them. So it's a pretty broad overview kind of perspectives of a variety of perspectives. Some of the issues that we're dealing with on the southern border and it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's a wonderful book. Oh, those are great recommendations. On the other end of the spectrum, I have a couple of fiction books to try out. Children of the Land by Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. Mm-hmm. Also just great writer, pretty wonderful structure and language used. I'm also going to recommend The Overstory by Richard Powers. It is a little different than this, but also just based on the fact that I just loved it as a book, but also that, again, the language is very beautiful and just one of those stories that kind of engulfs your heart when you're reading it, in my opinion. So Mm. that's a wonderful book. So I'll be back in October, folks, with Emily from North Liberty Library to discuss The Twisted Ones by T. King Fisher. We hope you'll join us again.